welcome to the Brick Podcast, produced here at the Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Bricks construct our communities and link past, present, and future. Here in Maine, bricks can be found in our town halls, our sidewalks, our schools, our cultural institutions, our courts, our homes, and our fireplaces. As cultural metaphors, bricks can describe our strength, a brick house, our suffering, oh, hit like a ton of bricks, our frustration, hitting a brick wall, our determination, brick by brick, and our way home too. Just follow the yellow brick road. As bricks weave through our community and our culture, this podcast will do the same. As we begin, I'd like to thank our business members who support the museum year-round. Business membership offers museum member benefits to all of your employees, plus opportunities for outreach, visibility, and facility rental. Thanks to our current business members, Kenny Bunk Savings, Captain Lord Mansion, Captain Jeffords Inn, Clark Insurance, Home and Away Gallery, Huntington Common, Hussey Seating Company, Waldo Emerson Inn, The New School, 1802 House Bed and Breakfast Inn, Atria Kennebunk, The B&B Team, Boulangerie, Sherry's, Duffy's Tavern and Grill, Garrett Pillsbury, Gorham Savings Bank, Houston and Company, Mainstay Inn and Cottages, The Nonantum Resort, Old House Parts Company, Weir's Buick's GMC, and Andrews Milligan Real Estate Company. You can learn more about business membership and corporate sponsorship on our website, www.brickstoremuseum.org, or by emailing us at info at brickstoremuseum.org. On the docket for February at the museum. Free February runs the entire month, offering free admission to exhibitions through February 29th. Our Love in the Kennebunks Tour returns every Saturday at noon. That means you can explore behind the scenes in our collection storage as you hear stories of love and loss through Kennebunks history. Tickets are $10 per person and $5 for members, and you don't need a reservation in advance. You just need to visit the museum about five minutes to noon um, every Saturday in February. Keep an eye out for our full 2020 schedule, which will be announced soon, and feature annual programs and events celebrating Maine and Kennebunk's bicentennials this year. This is Cynthia Walker, the director here at the Brickstore Museum. Thanks for tuning in to the first ever episode of the museum's podcast series, The Brick. In our introduction, recorded by the fabulous Rick Wolf, you heard why we decided to call our museum podcast The Brick. And to be honest with you, I got the idea for the title last winter when I was sitting in jury duty um, and thinking about how bricks seem to weave their way through our communities in ways we hardly think about. The podcast is very much an extension of our work here at the museum, which is to actively collect modern stories and experiences that are far in the past at the same rate. As we all know, the only thing that remains constant in our lives is the passage of time, and museums are in the business of time travel. This premiere podcast will differ a bit 
from our following casts in that we'll be producing different series for the podcast, like Artifact Chat, uh, oral history interviews, discussion of behind the scenes at the museum, and more. Uh, in addition to our uh, Citizen Spotlight series, which you'll hear today. One of the most exciting things in the world to me is understanding that everyone has a history. It sounds so obvious and simple, but I think we often forget, since it's so easy to think of people as actors who come and go in our own view of the world. But if you really concentrate, you start to realize just how many histories there are, and see how those histories weave a tapestry uh, that we all get to share. For instance, there are roughly 11,000 uh, residents in Kennebunk alone, and we each have a story. Um, that's 11,000 threads that stretch all the way back to the beginning of time. Local museums, like the Brickstore Museum, simply act as the weaver sitting at the loom, uh, watching all of these threads go back and forth, and seeing how they interweave in ways we might not expect. One of the reasons we started this podcast is to be able to share more of those stories than we possibly could get through in exhibitions and publications alone. There's just, um, as you may guess, uh, there's just far too many stories to even touch the tip of the iceberg. Thanks for taking this journey with us. One thing I'll ask of you today and during every podcast is that you please send us your ideas and questions. What do you want to learn about? Is there someone you think we should interview? Did you find something amazing? Always let us know by emailing the museum at info, which is I-N-F-O, at brickstoremuseum.org. Up now is our first ever Citizen Spotlight, a monthly oral history program that will feature a citizen of the Kennebunks telling their story. We developed a list of questions that center around history, art, and culture, and you'll hear those questions for every person on the program. Today, we welcome Elizabeth Grant of Kennebunkport. I want to welcome Elizabeth Grant to the first ever The Brick podcast from the Brickstore Museum in Kennebunk. We're here to talk about life, history, and culture, and how those three things often intersect. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to be here. Um, so tell me about your first name. Where does that come from? My first name is Elizabeth, and actually it has a history in my family, although it was never really the history of the name was not made a big deal. Um, my name is Elizabeth. My mother's name is Elizabeth. She went by Betty. I did not have a nickname. Her mother's middle name before she was married was also Elizabeth, so that takes it back three generations. Yeah. Then there was a skip, and then my great-great-grandmother's first name was Elizabeth. So... There's that family connection at least back five generations, but how much of that was deliberately handing the name down to keep it in the family mm -hmm. as opposed to simply liking the name and figuring I would name my child this? It's, it's hard to tell at this point. <laughs> but um, we didn't really discuss the ancestry behind the name. You were to be your own person, and you were to be the best you could be and achieve what you could achieve based on who you were, and there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, we named you after so-and-so. You didn't have that ancestral baggage, you know, attached <laughs> to your name. 
my mother wanted me to be called Betsy. That was the oh. nickname she wanted for me, and I was called Betsy till I was six years old. And she wanted, uh, she loved the name Betsy because one of her favorite cousins was Betsy, nickname also from Elizabeth. So again, some of this Elizabeth connection. I never, I guess, never really liked it. And when I was six, I said I wanted to be called Elizabeth. So it took a little while, I guess, for her to stop saying Betsy. But then I became Elizabeth for the rest of my life. It's actually kind of a challenging name because there are a ton of nicknames for it. And the most popular one is Liz. Plus, it's a mouthful. So a lot of times when I introduce myself to people, I'll say, my name is Elizabeth Grant, and they'll say, nice to meet you, Liz. And I actively dislike that name for me. It's a fine name for other people. But it's not like Thomas and Tom, where there's really only one nickname, unless you call somebody Tommy. There's a ton of different nicknames you could have for Elizabeth. And I'd be in work situations, and someone would call me Liz, and it would be in front of a superior of theirs or a subordinate of theirs. And then I wouldn't want to contradict them, but then the... Liz. So it's a, it's a tough name to have. A yeah. lot of people say it's a pretty name and a nice name, but if you don't have a nickname, you're always trying to explain why you don't have a nickname. And if you do have a nickname, you're sort of having to explain why you don't have a different nickname. Right. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure I would name a child of mine Elizabeth, but anyway. <laughs> so speaking of growing up, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Durham, North Carolina. And um, what I remember most about that is the heat and the humidity. I mean, just awful, (laughs) awful summers. In fact, when I moved to Maine about five years ago, uh, I came from the Washington, D.C. area at the time, but that was also horribly hot and humid in the summer. And people would say, you're moving to Maine? Oh, the winters there are so awful. And first of all, I'd say, well, I'm moving to southern Maine on the coast. I'm not moving to, you know, Mount Katahdin or Katahdin and Baxter State Park. Um, But I said, wait, do you like the summers here in Durham, North Carolina? Or do you like the summers in Washington? And I would say, well, it just depends which three months of the year you want to be inside. Do you want to be inside June, July, and August, which is what you were doing if you're in North Carolina? Or do you want to be inside maybe, you know, December, January, and February? And, And Mainers are great at pulling out the winter sports and trying to you know, fight the cabin <laughs> fever or so forth. But uh, yeah, I'm afraid I remember those, those steamy jungle sauna kinds of, oh of days growing up there. <laughs> you were living there because your parents chose to live there? or what? Right. Um, both of there? my parents were French professors at Duke University, and neither of them came from that area. Hmm. My mother, we'll talk about this later, but she's the one who had connections to the Kenny Bunks, although she spent most of her youth growing up in the Baltimore, Maryland area. Oh. Um, my father grew up in the Berkshires in New Hampshire, uh, excuse me, in Massachusetts. Um, the family later moved to New Hampshire, but that was after he was in college. So my parents really had New England slash mid-Atlantic roots. They met at Harvard where my father was getting a PhD and my mother was getting her master's in both in French. Wow. And so when they got married, they, he got a tenured position, at the time it wasn't tenured, it became a tenured position years later at Duke, but they moved to Durham, and that was the connection with North Carolina. But every summer, it kept my connection with New England alive, because his, my father's parents by then had moved to New Hampshire, the Hanover, Dartmouth area, and my mother had no living relatives here in the Kenny Bunks, but had spent childhood summers here. So with them being on a faculty schedule, we had a little more time off in the summer than many people with businesses. My father couldn't take all 10 weeks of summer vacation off. He had writing in summer schools and so forth. But generally, we would leave North Carolina around mid-July to come up to New England for a month and spend two weeks in the Kenny Bunks and two weeks in uh, the New Hampshire area. And that was what always kept me connected uh, 
to this area, even though I never lived here full time until I retired and moved here five years ago. So when you came up, you would, um, your family rent a house or stay with other Several relatives? things. At the, at the time, no one was living here full time anymore. My great grandparents' house is on Beach Avenue in the lower village on the left as you go to, I think it's number 12, Beach Avenue, uh, as you head toward the, the ocean. Um, but that was sold after my great-grandmother died in 53. Oh. So, but I have pictures of my mom playing on the lawn beside the house, you know, when she was a kid <laughs> oh, up neat. there. But getting back to your question, no, that house was no longer in the, the family to live so I, to live in. I don't remember when I was a, a really young kid where we stayed, but when I was sort of uh, elementary school age, we rented an apartment at what was called the Anvil Apartments in Kennebunkport. It's now Side Condos, right oh, where Elm Street okay. intersects Ocean Avenue. Interesting. And so we would rent that for, say, two weeks and then move over to uh, New Hampshire. My grandmother, who my mom's mom, who lived in Baltimore, she would come up for the summer and she would rent one of the cottages uh, Well, in later years at the Seaside, the Seaside Motor Inn on Gooch's Beach. Before she did that, I remember she stayed at the, what's now the Captain um, Jeffords Inn. Okay. But I believe it was either a private residence or there was a garage that had an apartment above it, and it was called the Garage Apartment. And it's very close to the Anvil Apartments. So I remember as a kid, you know, if we were done with breakfast and my parents weren't ready to do anything, I'd sort of scamper (laughs) over to my grandmother's place and hang out and bug her or do something (laughs) until it was time to go to the beach. But I think she only did that for a couple of years. This is all kind of fuzzy in my recall now. So before we move off of your parents, I just have to ask, since you said they were both... um, uh, French language uh, scholars. Did you speak French at home, or did they? We spoke uh, phrases of French or expressions of French. Yeah. And but we didn't try to have full conversations. Yeah. <laughs> we lived in France for six months when I was three and a half. Oh, so I picked up a good God. bit of French then. And when I came back to the U.S., I was speaking French. But of course, I dropped it very quickly because I was speaking English before I went. Sure. So it's not like the first language I learned was French. The first no. language I learned was English. But I think sometimes that's kept it in my head more, and I'll say things correctly by accident without really knowing why I'm saying it that way. Huh. Wow. And I think it may be because I heard that at an early age. Wow. And my accent, I mean, no one's going to mistake me for being bilingual, but uh, <laughs> my accent's much better than, than many would be, again, because I think I heard that French uh, at such an early age. And I'm, I'm right. continuing to take it right now, French, oh, nice. at uh, University of Southern Maine's OLLI program, the Osher Lifelong oh, Learning yeah, Institute program. So um, it's it's getting a little bit better, actually. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so. Uh, so we're talking a lot about family. How far back have you found your ancestors? The farthest back I've found my ancestors in the United States is 1635. Wow. Um, when a guy named Francis Peabody, although it was spelled Paybody, P-A-Y-B-O-D-Y, came huh. over from England. And I can trace them back farther in England, but I haven't you know, gone that last step. Sure. I can trace them back to the Kenny Bunks to the 1740s. Wow. So that's as far as I have done it uh, to the Kenny Bunks. But I also haven't done a massive, thorough job of it, just trying to dabble online and see what I could come up oh, with. Sure. So, A number of my ancestors are buried in the Holmes Cemetery in the Lower Village. That's the little one um, near the Commons Drive, oh, okay. uh, near the English Meadows Inn, sure. not Hope, Hope Cemetery, right. which is the big one in, in Kenny Bunk. <laughs> Um, and my great 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 grandfather James Peabody is buried there, and he was born 
listen to these dates, in 1772 and died in 1864. So that made him 92 years old when he died, which is an impressive age in any era and certainly back then. For sure. And think about what he saw. He would have been three years old when the American Revolution started in 1775. Now, obviously, he's not going to remember hardly anything from that. But the the Treaty of Yorktown was in 1781. He would have been eight or nine years old by then, and he right. certainly would remember that. And he certainly would have grown up hearing his parents talk about the American Revolution, yep. particularly since it turns out he married a woman named Miriam Mitchell, and her father, Jotham Mitchell, who both Miriam and Jotham are buried in the same cemetery, he fought in the American Revolution. And next to his grave has got one of those 1775 American oh, markers. Revolution markers. Yep. And here on Memorial Day, when the Kenny Bunk American Legion goes to the local cemeteries for their salute, there's uh, American flags that are placed on the graves of all those who fought in various wars and he's there so my great-great-grandfather I am sure heard stories of the American Revolution and certainly would have remembered in the the latter parts of it then when he died in 1864 the Civil War was in in full swing and starting to of course with hindsight we know it was starting to wind down unless he had had some form of dementia was really not you know attuned to what was going on he would have seen um the the Civil War and the probable hopeful from the North point of view and of the Civil War. Uh, obviously, anybody who's lived 90 or 100 years is going to have seen and experienced a wide spectrum of, you know, historical and cultural, uh, uh, geological and geographic events. But to have your life marked by the wars that began the creation of this country and then the war that sort of saved the dissolution of this country are pretty... Um, pretty striking milestones. Yeah, that so. is a striking milestone. What else amazed you uh, when you were kind of digging into the history of your family? What kind of sparked your interest? One thing I saw, and I can't remember who the relatives were. It was a way back, but it was a husband and a wife and another a person who died, I want to say it was October 20th, 17-something, mm-hmm. all on the same day. Oh, yeah. So you feel like there's a hidden story behind that that you kind of like to explore. There's all these neat little stories that you realize, oh, so there's this connection to this piece of property. or Yeah. um, Even like the uh, Captain Fairfield Inn belonged in, was in my family in the late 1850-ish. Oh, wow. Through that. And I only rediscovered that after coming to Maine and starting to dabble in some of this. So it's kind of neat to look around and find those connections. I would think so. (laughs) <laughs> so um, we're talking a lot about uh, Maine as well as your uh, childhood home. But when you close your eyes uh, and I say the word home, what what do you picture first? I think of Kennebunkport and I think of Gooch's Beach, wow. typically. Nice. That's a good and it's always Before I moved here, if, if you're having some difficult medical procedure or you're trying to you know be in a meditative state or go to your happy place, mm-hmm. I would always go to to Gooch's Beach, that corner where the seaside is, because that's where we would spend summers later on. So switching gears a little bit, uh, work and careers are a big part of our lives today as Americans. Um, So tell me about what you do for work or did for work. I'm retired now. I retired five years ago. Uh, I was an attorney in Washington, D.C. I I went to Washington, D.C. for law school, uh, GW Law School, and spent the first few years of my career in private practice, and then I switched over to the U.S. government. My specialty was uh, government contract law, which is 
in some ways similar to commercial contracts, two parties reaching an agreement on whatever it is that they need done, but because of the taxpayer dollars involved and because of the whole uh, government structure, there's a a slew of overlays of rules and regulations about how you award contracts, how you perform contracts. Wow. So that was my specialty for throughout my career. And toward the end of my career, I became a judge for a federal administrative judge. So I didn't have to be, you know, approved by Congress or something. <laughs> um, so I would rule on those cases and it would be from the, it could be the big boys and girls like Lockheed Martin and Boeing to the little mom and pops providing fuel oil to Camp Swampy. I worked on the defense department, side of the U.S. government, but there was a a sister organization that handled the civilian agencies as well. Um, I I think my favorite parts of that were not so much the content of it, although contract law was very compatible with my modus operandi, I guess, but um, problem solving, writing. I got, toward the last 10 years or so of my career, very interested in alternative dispute resolution and mediation, and I served as a mediator, as a judge for about four cases, and before I became a judge, about two cases. Uh, All of those were resolved through mediation, not necessarily through any great thing that I did. The point of mediation is for two parties to try to say, look, am I willing to take a deal that I'm sort of lukewarm about rather than proceed for litigation for years, spend tons of money, and have a crapshoot result that I have no idea, I have no control over? And so most people would rather, you know, sort of hold their nose and sign the present-day agreement. The point is no one's going to leave happy, but if you can leave okay with what you (laughs) dealt with, then you can move on and you can go on to something else. Um, and I love teaching. I had a chance to do some public speaking and teaching both for my organization and, and several other organizations. So when I look back on my career, I find that what I liked the best was some of the skill sets, mm-hmm. the problem solving, writing, teaching, and um, creative you know, problems, the analysis, I guess, sure. analytical um, the analytical structure of a problem, yeah. working towards solution. But people ask me now, they'll say, um, because there's so many older people in the Kenny Bonks and who've <laughs> retired or they're thinking about retiring and they're worried right. about, you know, what's my life going to be like when I retire? Sure. Do you miss your job? And I don't even, the sentence is barely out of their mouths before I'm saying <laughs> not at all. And after okay. 35 years of, of law school and a professional career, you can really enjoy it. I'm not sure how much I ever loved it, but I certainly, you know, enjoyed it and it was a good, rewarding career. But sometimes I feel like my whole life has been spent preparing myself for now and this is my real life. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. When I was about 35, I had taken one of these executive development program courses that happened to be at Duke uh, that I didn't go there because of the Duke and Durham connection. One month, sort of a mini MBA thing. And it was all focused on, on business and finance and so forth, which often lawyers are considered to be weak in, and so you need to expand that. Wow. But they did have a, one of the programs, one of the sessions or whatever, was uh, a wellness, total mind, health, balance, life balance perspectives kind oh, okay. of classes and awareness, wow. both physical and mental health kind of thing. And there was a question that they handed, several questions in sort of a workbook they handed out. And one of them said, if you had six months left to live, what would you do? I'm 35 at the time. And you know you're not immortal, but you're not particularly looking at a very imminent timeline. Yeah. And I remember looking up from my paper for just a second and then looking back down and writing, move to Kenny Bonkport. And that, that's one of the, I think at that point, I always considered Kenny Bunkport my soul home, and mm-hmm. I always felt right here, and I never felt quite right anywhere else, the possible exception of my college years. 
uh, the definite exception of my college years. Um, but when I wrote that down, I thought, well, of course, you don't have to be a brainiac to realize if that's what you would do. When you have six months left to live, maybe you should do it when you have more than six months left to live. Yeah. And from then, I started forming retirement plans to move here. What made you decide to become a lawyer? There seems like a more male-dominated uh, career, maybe early, maybe not now, um, today. But... Well, when I graduated from GW, a about 40% of the class was women. Wow. So okay. while certainly it was very male-dominated a generation ahead of me, my generation was starting to get, even even when you were in the minority, was a pretty substantial minority. You didn't yeah. come oh, into great. a room and feel like you, know, you were the only woman. You would right. notice that actually after you graduated and then oh. you went into the law firm or went into the office or you had meetings where you might walk into a meeting and there's 12 people around the table and then you're the only woman. Right. But that... I didn't feel too much of a gender issue at that point. Um, the the biggest, and I'm going to get back to your question about why I got into that, but sure. the, the biggest gender thing that I felt was style. For example, and this is a stereotype, but <laughs> a lot of stereotypes are based on you know fundamental mm -hmm. concepts. Women tend to be a little bit more conciliatory, a little more problem solving, a little bit more how can we work our way through this as opposed to attack and be divisive. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in a, bit, a situation where you are using finesse, for lack of a better word, as one of your operating strategies and you're with an old school guy, yeah. he may perceive that as weakness because you're not coming on hard and attack dog mode. Right. Um, wow. And there were times where I felt that women were kind of disincentivized from being more subtle, for lack of a better phrase, or using more finesse, hmm. or that you were incentivized to be more forceful, more pushy, more brash. Right. Um, Interesting. Now, I mean, having said that, you can find plenty of men, even back in the day, you know, who would have, and women who would flip that stereotype. But sure. it was a, a subject of discussion among uh, female attorneys oh, of mine and it was not my own my sole perspective right. on that wow but how i got into it i don't it's sort of accidental i guess as i <laughs> mentioned my parents were professors at duke and i went to junior high and high school with people who parents were also professors at duke and the only difference was the subject matter of what right. they taught <laughs> right. and some of them were doctors at duke medical center so oh. the only people professions that I knew they were either professors or doctors sure. and I didn't really know people who were bankers I didn't know people who even worked in academia in non-professorial roles right. I didn't know people who worked in business who were accountants or finance or who were in development or fundraising that's something that if I you know was looking back over it now I might have been interested in, in pursuing right. um, and my high school situation was was pretty challenging that's another story but we didn't have guidance counselors who tried to match your skills for what you might oh, be sure. looking for you know professional development yeah so I really just had these two images of these are my two career paths to be a doctor or to be a professor huh. when I was in um, ninth grade uh, we saw an open heart surgery film in our ninth grade science class, wow. and it was that was around 1970. So I think the first open heart surgeries I want to say were in the late 50s. But now this was starting to become more of a hey, here's a new thing that might be available more commonly. Yeah, and I was just riveted by this film and just fascinated by it. And 
other people in the class were saying, oh, gross, that's so gross looking. And I'm, I'm just glued to this. And I decided then and there that I was going to be a cardiac surgeon. Wow. So that sort of solved my career path choice. <laughs> Look at me now. Um, well, then I discovered chemistry and physics and advanced biology and thought maybe I need to rethink this career choice. <laughs> so, so there went my long lamented you know, career in medicine, although I always had a very, very active interest in it. And, sure. Um, <laughs> But I do still remember standing in the kitchen one time having a, a, an argument with mom. I mean, it was a nice argument. It wasn't yelling kind of thing, right. but a, a discussion. discussion with point counterpoint. And she looking at me saying something like, you should be a lawyer, where obviously she felt like I either out-argued her or at <laughs> right. least made you know, an appropriate uh, comment. And the only thing I knew about lawyers at that point was the television program, Perry Mason, which if you talk oh, sure. to somebody now, they're the kid now, they're not going to even know what that was. Um, and somehow I had a feeling that that was not an accurate representation right. of what lawyers did. <laughs> but when I went to college, um, I ended up majoring in history, still oh, wow. with no, in fact, I decided that my freshman year. I went to college thinking I would major in either math or theater arts, which are rather different yeah. professions. And by the end of my first semester, decided history, which is, again, completely different tangent, but that's what <laughs> college is supposed to be for. That's right. But um, law does not really have a pre-law study like medicine does. But mm -hmm. most people who go to law school have either majored in history, government, which is sometimes called political science, or right. English. So I was with a lot of people in history who knew already that they were going on to oh, law okay. school. Yeah. And so I would ask, I didn't even know how many years law school was at that time. It was three years, still is. Okay. Um, but I mean, I knew nothing about law and being a lawyer and I'm a real data gal. So I wanted to try yeah. to do research on what would it be like to go to law school and what would it be like to be a lawyer? And it's kind of pathetic in retrospect you know what I did but I did the little I could trying to sit in on a, a few classes that I went to Cornell undergrad but there's a law oh, school wow. at Cornell sure that's co-located with the undergrad school uh, and so I could like sit in on a class for one session oh, sure. I mean it's not like I was, was auditing but to see what it was like and yep. asked everybody I knew uh, <laughs> who either was a lawyer or was in law school but finally I got down to my senior year and I figured I'd either be a professor of history or go to law school and for some reason, I just wasn't quite interested in that academic world. I mm -hmm. loved the teaching part of it, but the research and the writing, and now it had come into the real publisher parish uh, right. yeah. mode. Um, some of the things I saw from my father and his work in academia, it, it just, just, not that it turned me off, but it, it gave me some pause. And sure. so I kind of went to law school not really knowing if that was going to work for me or not. Wow. We know you through the museum, but um, I actually never knew about your previous career. I only know you from uh, right now from all of the things that you do in the community. And I know one of those is the Garden Club, the Seacoast yes. Garden Club. Um, but what other things have you been doing Well, recently? let's see. I'm co-president right now of the Seacoast Garden Club. That's a two-year term and have been involved with it before my presidency and will continue to be involved as you when you finish your presidency, you then have various other jobs that you sure. slip into to <laughs> phase through transitions. Uh, I attend the South Congregational Church, uh, United Church of Christ in Kennebunkport. I'm a m member of it, and I've been on the board of deacons for about five years, and for much of that time I've either been co-chair or right now I'm chair of the board of deacons. Wow. And I enjoy that. Right now our, our permanent, or I shouldn't call them permanent ministers, they're called settled ministers, oh, okay. uh, left about a year ago when he retired, and he was much loved. He had been wow. in the church for about 27 years, and wow. it's always hard to lose a a spiritual leader and friend yes, um, after so many years. 
so we're in an interim process and we'll be beginning part two of our search process uh, very shortly. But that means that the existing lay boards like the Board of Deacons are taking on extra roles that if you had a veteran minister there that they, they would be would. handling or, or interesting. Uh, and it's actually good sometimes to realize, well, gee, so-and-so would have done this if he was here, but why? This is better done by a lay person. The minister might be better off spending his or her time in other categories. Right. So it gives you a chance to, a la history, you know, use part of a transition to feel stable and have continuity, but also to, to once that sort of initial panic <laughs> wears <laughs> <Yeah>. off <laughs> and feel like, okay, the world's not going to come to an end, then to explore well, what might we want to do differently or uh, just have open perspectives and horizons. So yeah, that's wow. something else I've been very involved in. And uh, I mentioned French. I when, I when I moved to this area, I have a cousin in Gorham, and she mentioned that she was taking this French class at Ollie, and I got all excited about it. She <laughs> said, what's well, offered every spring and every fall? And it's, a, it's an ongoing class. You don't, like, graduate to another level. You just, oh, continue, you just continue and try to yeah. uh, intermediate level and try to improve on everything. Yeah. And so I started taking that, and this is now my fourth year, I guess, of doing that. Wow. And what's interesting, it's located in Portland, so the students draw from all over, from southern Maine, from Portland itself, and from some of the towns just north of Portland, okay, you know, Falmouth yeah. and Yarmouth and so forth. And I've discovered four other people in the group who live in either Wells or Kenny Bunk. Oh, wow. And so we've formed a group we call it the Southern group because we're the <laughs> South of Portland group. There's another group that's called the Northern group who just on their own will meet. The Northern group meets once a week. We meet just wow. once a month and it's just for coffee and croissants and conversation, but it's to be all in French. And that's a challenge. Um, it's okay. a challenge and we're probably butchering it left <laughs> and right. But the point is to get used to speaking and to not sure. be afraid of speaking and not feel yeah. like someone, the grammar police are after you. Right, right, right. So, you know, if you had asked me when I was retiring and moved to Maine, do you anticipate that you would be dusting off and pursuing your French studies? I would have said not at all, not not because I was opposed to it, but because it never crossed my mind. So those are some of the things I've been involved with. So maybe we'll switch uh, a little bit to the culture side of things. What is your favorite book? <laughs> I'm a bookworm, <laughs> and um, that's hard. I, I'm not sure I can actually answer that question, but I'll say favorite author, and Jane Austen is probably ah, my favorite author. And yes. since she only wrote six books, you know, it, <laughs> several of them vie for supremacy and yeah. <laughs> ranking at different times. And it's shocking. I believe I'm right in saying that she died when she was 40 or 39. Yeah, um, and uh, you just feel like, <laughs> if only she had lived another 30 years and had yeah. written another, you know, 20 books. That's true. But um, the way she writes, I, I love words as the craft, the crafting of the words I mentioned earlier in my legal profession. You know, right. crafting, writing was always so important to me, and I love doing it. And the insights that she has, I don't think, I think I'm, you know, smart and astute, at least in a general sense of the way, but I don't know that I had that perception of human the human psyche and and how some of the most pithy observations she makes in a sentence that just it seems like it's an obvious thing to her and that it's obvious when you read it but you think would I have come up with that thought by thinking about <laughs> right, that yeah. so um and I love authors that I read and reread and reread. I met someone once who said that they never reread a book, that they, there oh. were so many other books out there to read that they just never reread one. Yeah. And I was just shocked by that. To me, books are like friends. And right. to not reread them is not you. getting yeah. back with one of your friends. You know? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> so. That is interesting, isn't it? 
What was the first movie you saw in the theater, or at least remember seeing in the theater? I, I, I really have a hard time remembering. I will give you two rough answers, but we were not a big movie family. Oh, we okay. were just a yeah. books family. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure I saw movies as in the theater as a kid, but I just really don't remember them. Um, the two I do remember, which I'm sure were not the first, but in reverse chronological order, when I was 16, I spent the summer here in Maine working at the Narragansett Resort as a waitress. That was back when okay. the Narragansett in, uh, on Gooch's Beach, which is now Condos, was a resort. And the Lyric Theater in Kenny Bunkport was open for movies. And I remember seeing the sound of music in the Lyric Theater. Yep. Um, but I was 16 and, of course, 16 and a half, I guess, at the time. And I'm certain I'd seen a number of movies since then. And the only other movie I remember seeing that I saw, and I don't remember the content of it, was I think I was maybe about 14 or so, and I was living in Durham, North Carolina, and we lived about a mile walk from a little strip mall shopping center, and it had a movie theater there. Hmm. And one Saturday, I walked down uh, with a friend of mine. There wasn't much to shop at, you know, grocery store, Woolworths, <laughs> a drugstore, you know. And we saw that a movie was playing called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Oh, and gosh. I think it was rated the equivalent of PG or whatever the ratings were at that time, but we said, well, hey, let's go see it. So there must have been a 2 o'clock showing, and we walked in to see right. the movie. And I really don't remember much of the plot line, watched the movie, and then came home. Yeah. And my mom had started to worry that I had been gone such a long time because, of course, I had had the what you know 30-minute walk there and back. That's an hour. The two-hour movie, that's three hours, and then probably yeah. wandering around a little bit. So I was probably gone about four hours, middle of the day on a sunny day. I mean, there's nothing really to be alarmed about, but yeah. she was very concerned. And uh, I, the only reason I remember that I saw this movie was because I don't think I was really disciplined because I didn't technically really do anything wrong. Yeah. She didn't care that I saw the movie. She just didn't know where I was or that I had been gone so long and said that I needed to let her know. Now, this is long before cell phones. So how? Sure. Although I guess there was a pay phone, come to think of it, at that drugstore. So I suppose I could have called her up. <laughs> Uh, to let her know that. But but anyway, all of this just shows that it's it's the books that I kind of cuddle up with and, and yeah. not the movies. And uh, <laughs> I, I really can't remember when when I would have seen my first movie. Well, that's a comment in itself, which I appreciate. Um, again, this is another question that some, some people remember it right off the bat, and some people don't. But uh, do you remember your first car? I certainly do. It was a 1981 Buick Skylark. Wow. Okay. Uh, silver color. And the reason I remember it is I was in law school. I was 25 at the time, finishing up my last year of law school. Actually, I guess it was 24 because of how my birthday falls. And um, I didn't need a car at college. And I really didn't need a car. I mean, it's nice to have for certain things, but sure. it can be a liability more than an asset. <laughs> um, plus, I couldn't have afforded a car. And my parents had no intention of buying me a car, nor could they easily have afforded it either. Hmm. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, the one with the Kenny Bunk connection, had died in my second year in law school. She was about 84. Oh, wow. And she had left me $15,000. Wow. And I got that from her estate by the end of my second year in law school. And although I had a partial scholarship at law school, I took that money and put half of it toward my last last year's law school tuition and the other half for the car and bought my car for it was eight thousand and change it might have been eighty five hundred but it's brand new nineteen eighty one Buick Skylark wow. and I have a feeling my grandmother would have been very pleased with how I spent both of that you know forwarding my education and then also having a car and of course now I'm going to sound like one of these old fogies who say you know I walk barefoot through the snow for you know six miles but when I hear of people now giving their kids cars when they're sixteen and. Uh, 
I don't know. It just leaves me speechless to feel like I, it doesn't matter. In our, in my family's case, we couldn't have afforded it. But if you can afford it, I just don't understand what positive message that's sending. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel, uh, I, I think there's some value in not having things come too easily, too quickly. That was part of the, the advantage of being with an academic family is um, – academics and, and college, for example, was sacrosanct. I mean, sure. I went oh, to yeah. Cornell on full, no scholarship whatsoever. My parents had saved from the very beginning, and that was what you did. You put through your kids through to school, the best schools that you could go to. Yeah. Um, but you know, we got our clothes at J.C. Penney's and Sears, and you know, yeah. we weren't members of a country club set, and mm-hmm. we didn't go out to dinners very often, and you, know, you, you, right. you did not make a lot of money if you're in, in academics. Um, so to get my first car and to have that and feel like that's that was a mark of, of transition into adultness. Oh, do you have a favorite song? I think I do. Um, I've always, ever since it came out, I have loved Leanne Womack's song, I Hope You Dance. Oh, of course. And um, <laughs> in fact, when my husband and I got married, that was our you know dance oh. song to it. The, the music is just beautiful. I love very you know lyric, beautiful music. But the words too, you know, I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. I hope when one door closes, another always opens. Um, Give fate a fighting chance. And when you have the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. Uh, I mean, if that song doesn't send, I mean, I I would sing it if I could do it properly and I won't. (laughs) But um, if that song doesn't send shivers up your spine, listening to the words and applying them and understanding what that means about life, then nothing will. Um, I think it resonates on a lot of levels. If I have to pick favorite composers or or musicians, I guess I would say the Simon and Garfunkel songs, which I came of age in that era of Simon and Garfunkel. And thinking about the lyrics and the words, things like Bridge Over Troubled Waters or Sounds of Silence or so many of the songs that they did in an era where um, people and society were sort of struggling with change and and reforming and transforming themselves is very, um, very powerful. What are some of your favorite things to eat, and do you like to cook? Two questions. I, I'll answer them in reverse order. Um, I don't particularly like to cook. I don't dislike it, but I, I cook to eat, not sure. because I'm a great, you know, the next TV chef program person. <laughs> yeah. I do like to bake. So in my family, my husband likes to cook, so he's the more Good. chef person, and I'm the more baking person. The problem is, is that most of us need to watch our calories and how much refined <laughs> sugar and fat right. and, and white flour we need to consume so I really have to limit my baking but but I do enjoy doing that um but just an interesting aside on personality styles bakers generally need to be rather disciplined about following the recipes you can make some some creative changes but those baking recipes are going to be a little bit less forgiving if you get too wild and crazy with them the non-baking recipes you can have a sort of mad scientist chef at the stove you know throwing in a wide variety of things and it's a perfect analogy for my husband and me he'll make something great and I say what did you how did you make this and he says oh I don't know I did this I threw in this and that and I said well sit down and write it down now because he won't be able to reproduce it later on so I think a lot of the great chefs find these rules restricting and so they want to be able to be creative in the kitchen For people, for me at least, I had a lot of pressure at work. And when I came home, if I was cooking, I didn't want to think. 
right. I just wanted to follow, just give me a note card to follow, and I will follow this. And it's the science, repeat, repeatability and reproducibility. I can make the same thing the exact same way, and it will turn out the same way every time. Right. And I just follow a formula, and then I'm done, and I don't have to get stressed about it. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. <laughs> in terms of what I like to eat, unfortunately, pretty much everything. Um, I love most seafoods. And uh, that's usually my go-to meal in restaurants. Uh, I do love filet mignon, and I like poultry. like turkey and duck, and um, I like lamb. But if if you told me I couldn't have one of those categories for the rest of my life, I would rather do without those than do without the fishes and the seafoods and the shellfishes and so forth. Um, Love fruit. Love wine, big wine, drinker, and of course love desserts, (laughs) refined sugar. Got to watch those. (laughs) Um, so tell me about a piece of art that resonated with you. Mm-hmm. This is a, an obvious one for me. When I was 10, we were in Europe, and we went to Paris, my family, and I saw Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night oh. in the original, and um, I think it was the Jeux de Pomme, which at the time was the museum. It was either the Orangerie or the Jeux de Pomme, which were the museum for the Impressionist paintings at the oh, time. Okay. Now it's Musée d'Orsay. Uh, okay. It's been redone. but. Wow. And if you know the painting, and it's a very well-known one, the, the power and the color, um, nighttime sky, but the, the stars and the um, firmament, and just, it, it, it's it's almost like the painting version of the Leanne Womack sign, I hope you still feel yeah. small when you stand oh, beside totally. the ocean, you know, uh, stand beside the ocean. You feel small when you look up into the firmaments like that and then see the power behind it. Because even on a clear night, say in Maine, you can look up and see the stars. But when you get that a storm quality, there's often clouds, so you're not connected with that other sphere, so yeah. to speak, of, of, of the universe. Yeah. And the Van Gogh painting lets you be on Earth and yet see the power of all that that's bigger than you. Anyway, so I was so struck by that that... Uh, I was about 16 or so. I got a print of Starry Night. Obviously, that's all I could afford. And, and remembered framing it and framing and glassing is pretty expensive. So it this was, a, I mean, back at the time, this was about $150. Now it probably would have been about 500 to do that. But sure. And that was a lot of money for me to pay out of my allowance. But I really wanted to do wow. that. So I had this framed print of Starry Night for many, many years. And when I next went back to Europe, I was 17, almost 18, after co- high school. And I ran my old buns over to the... <laughs> or wherever it was to look for Starry Night, it was on uh, exhibit on display in New York City. Oh, no. And here I was was in in Paris, (laughs) and the painting's back in the United States. So I have not seen it in the original since then. So, uh, But it it made a a big mark on me. Left a big mark on me. So you, uh, through our conversation, you obviously know a a whole lot, but what do you wish you knew more about? Um two part to that related to what I said before, uh, medicine. I just mm-hmm. think the human body is fascinating and how it's put together and what it can do and what we ask of it. Um, I've always been very struck by that. And also the human mind yeah, and how the human mind works and doesn't work in, from the psychology of things to the, the physiology of things, the dementia mm-hmm, uh, issues, right. how we selectively process information. I mean, all of that is just uh, incredibly interesting to me. So if you pictured yourself walking through an antique store, uh, what would you be excited to find on the shelf? Probably nothing in particular. <laughs> um, furniture and things that are in antique stores appeal to me 
because of their form and not because of their age. And I tend to like a little bit more of a, a clean line form, um, often antique furniture or antique china can be a little bit more either curly cues or, or you can have the, it can either be more fancy kind of like or it can be more simple like the shaker right. style yeah. and, and in fact of that I prefer a more of a, a, that simple line okay. but um, because I like sort of that clean simple line and a kind of a classic slash modern style some of the antiques are, are too um, elaborate I guess for my taste or else too rustic if time travel ever existed in our lifetime, what would you, how would you take advantage of that? Uh, I think I wouldn't. I think I would ignore it. <laughs> uh, I feel like there's enough challenges in daily life, and m one of my challenges has been to try to appreciate the now and not always be planning for tomorrow. That's fair. Now I realize time travel can take you back as well, and then you are back in the era where you die of pneumonia and yeah. influenza and things that now we, well, I was going to say we take for granted until now we have all kinds of what used to be extinct diseases yes, coming back okay. to haunt us. Um, being a history major, I love and appreciate the past tremendously, but I don't necessarily want to go live in it. Mm -hmm. um, and the future I find kind of scary. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's good that we can't, or I, for me, I'm kind of glad that I can't see as much as I That's love to try to control take. things and yeah. plan things. That there's, on, on, the, on the big macro level, I'll just go along with the, the, the wave that I am writing. Uh, the micro level, I'm all about control and organization <laughs> and trying to design my life in the way that will suit me the best possible. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I'd be um, a good candidate for time travel. <laughs> That's fair. Um, last question, why are museums important to you? Uh, or are they? <laughs> they are. Uh, I guess I'm getting back to this connection thing that I was talking about, Leanne Womack's song and Van Gogh's painting. Mm. But museums put you in a 3D environment of your context in this world and in this life. Yes, it tends to be more present and past. You're not typically doing the Museum of the Future unless you're in very specialized museums like that. But when you're seeing the whole trail of history, whether it's through history and art in an art museum or American history or uh, natural history, you're, you're seeing this flow and pattern over time, and you are in it. And it also lets, so it lets you appreciate how things got to where they are, but it's not like this whole world was just a prelude for you or me, you know. Right. It's that we are just this little piece in this. And that's kind of reassuring that we don't have to have so hugely important a role and we're not so critical. When I mentioned I was in Europe when I was 10 uh, and the Paris Van Gogh story, but we were also in London for um, a little bit. And my mother was quite sick and uh, ultimately hmm. we had to cancel the trip and go home but while they were my parents were figuring out what to do my brother and I were just let loose to do whatever we wanted to in London and our hotel happened to be two blocks away from the British Museum of Natural History wow. and we had to cross two streets <laughs> over and my parents I was 10 and he was 13 I think they were a little okay. bit 10 and a half and 13 and a half they may have been a little bit nervous about yeah. it but just said you know make sure you look both ways and remember they drive on the other side of the street so you know look the opposite direction twice right. um, but we would just walk over and entertain ourselves walking through the British Museum of Natural History and I've never oh. been back since then but I remember it so vividly and um, we probably don't have time for some of my stories but that that's a perfect example of um, feeling like that's a place where you can go and you can learn about 
the world, you can learn about others, you can learn about yourself in the world. And if you don't have that, where do you get that from? That's a good way to frame it. <laughs> so um, this is one question that uh, just came to me because um, I always, I always wonder how, you know, individuals develop their own kind of uh, theories on life and the world and everything. Um, how do you think uh, you, Elizabeth Grant, formed um, into the way you think now? I mean, was it your parents or was it just a whole lot of experiences? How would you start thinking about that? Um, I haven't studied this at all, but I, I think there's a lot of... I, I I would probably say a bigger portion of just the genetics and the heredity, mm-hmm. the 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 psyche of how you view and approach things. Um, I'm a huge fan of Myers Briggs personality profiling. Oh, sure. I'm not sure if you're familiar with yep. that, and it, it's the concept of dominant hand. You know, if we have a left hand and a right hand, we use both of our hands. But most people, unless you're truly ambidextrous, have one hand that's your more dominant. And there's certain approaches to how you deal with yourself, how you deal with the world, how you process information, hmm. how you reach conclusions that we all have natural preferences for. Wow. And um, my understanding of of that approach is that 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 is how you are wired. Now, having said that, you you through your environment it's the nature versus nurture argument through your environment you can shift in different ways and i think my parents taught me a lot of uh, values and traits or taught me a lot of values and exposed me to a lot of traits that sort of reinforced what i had but i have been very consistently me the me in my head now is very much like how I always was. So I feel right. like there's something internal. In fact, I was rereading the journal that I'd written when I was 17, when I was in Europe. Oh, wow. I mean, and you'd think it was me writing now, yeah. practically. I mean, you adjusted for some youthful <laughs> remarks, but sure. <laughs> some of the analytical comments and some of the expectations and how I proceed is just, you know, cookie cutter copy of how I am That's now. Interesting. So I, I think a lot of it is just how you are created and getting back to my concept about how fascinating the human mind is and not just why am I this height and this weight and this bone structure and this blood type, but right. why am I the internal person that I am and how did I get to be that way? Yeah, exactly. um, But clearly uh, the environment's going to have a, a huge play in that. That's too right. Well, Elizabeth, it's about an uh, uh, hour for our interview, but I really appreciate you sitting down and being our uh, <laughs> test subject for our first interview. Um, so thank you very well, much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of The Brick, brought to you by the museum's proud business partners. Questions, comments, and topic suggestions can be emailed to info at brickstoremuseum.org. Please tune in to next month's show to dive into more Kennebunk history, art, and culture. And to learn more about what the museum does year-round, please visit our website at www.brickstoremuseum.org.